My biggest investing philosophy is um, applicable almost anywhere. Buy high quality assets at high quality locations and try to put high quality tenants in them. Mm. If you do that, going to be hard to screw this up. Real estate is very forgiving. Yes, there are times where people lose money, but it's going to be hard to screw up if you do that. Welcome to the Income Flip Podcast, a podcast about real estate entrepreneurs, visionaries, and the stories and strategies they're using to create wealth and legacy for their family. I'm your host, Rob Chavez, and on today's episode, I have Russell Brazil from Washington, D.C. with me. Now, Russell runs District Invest. He's an agent investor that specializes in helping investors build wealth, and he himself is an active investor in the Washington, D.C. metro market. If you're interested in understanding all the little nuances of how to do deals in D.C., Russell's your guy. Listen to this episode because I guarantee you're going to walk away with two or three nuggets that's going to help you build a better business. Grid, guess what? Today, we have Russell Brazil from the Washington, D.C. market. So my market, right? Um, although we're in Northern Virginia, so we're a little bit, it's like a whole different world compared to your market, you know? Yeah, we're like 30 minutes apart. We're 30 minutes apart, but you know, our area is so, so dense. So, Russell, thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Great to be here, Rob, and always great, always fun talking with you. Well, man, you know, one of the reasons why um, I wanted to get you on this podcast is because you are an agent investor. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've been watching you from afar for all the different things that you do and how you pour into the investment community. And I personally, selfishly, wanted to learn more about your story because I, I don't know it, right? I don't I don't know your story. We've been out to dinner a couple of times, right, among friends. But I wanted to to get into this setting and kind of unpack your story, your model. How did you even get into this business in the first place? So why, why don't you walk me through? How, how long have you been in the business now? Yeah, so I've been in the business in some fashion for 20 years and two months now. So I first got my real estate license in uh, 2003, January 2003, back in Boston. And I was not uh, in sales, um, but I was, I was newly out of college and thought, I'm going to become a multimillionaire flipper. So I started flipping properties on the side, got my license to sort of... Uh, Helped me along the way there. And as we all, re- I shouldn't say as we all remember, if you're old enough to remember, uh, 2003 was really as the housing bubble was starting to get ramped up. So really, really hard to lose money at that point. But on my first three or four flips, I still managed to lose a lot of money. Um, <laughs> luckily, I was the age where losing 20 grand here, well, all right, I just went from 80 grand in debt from student loans to 100 grand. Not a big deal. Um, or well, it was a big deal, but you're too young to realize that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so over the course of a couple of years, I, each flip, I sort of lost a little less money each time till I actually kind of started to figure out what I was doing. Um, so I started figuring out what I was doing. I started making some money uh, flipping properties. And as we start to get into 06, 07, we start to see the market turn. And I'm, I'm doing real estate on the side and I'm working in healthcare full time. Um, and it became evident that the uh, market was turning and I needed to make a decision whether I was going to go full on into real estate or full on into my healthcare career. And I actually decided full on into my healthcare career and abandoned real hmm. estate for, uh, for about two or three years. 
Hmm. Moved to DC, new market, um, wasn't licensed here yet, but the real estate market starts collapsing. And my, you know, my, I just start seeing dollar signs everywhere. I'm like, man, I can buy this property for 300,000 that two years ago was 450. And, you know, I just kept seeing these opportunities over and over again. I'm like, I got to jump into this. Um, and so I started buying up as many rentals as I could starting in 09, uh, built out the majority of my property, my portfolio from 09 to 2012. And then the market started recovering. As I start to build my rental portfolio, I've, you know, start generating some cash flow. And I'm like, man, I really love real estate more than being in healthcare. Let me jump into this full time. So right around 20, 2013, 2012 is when I jump into real estate full time to uh, give it my all. Hmm. Hmm. Man, our journeys in terms of timing, so similar. Like eerily similar, interesting. Um, I I I actually, unlike you, I decided in 05 to go in all in full time, um, knowing that we we're probably going to go through some kind of mess. But uh, I wish I'd skipped that part for a yeah. couple of years. <laughs> I wish I'd skipped that part. But you know, there was like immense learning ground during that. You know, that's how we call it. Like there was a lot of learning going on in that time, right? So, okay, so you're in healthcare and then you, you, you're building this portfolio and you decide, you know what, this is my heart, this is my passion. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump into real estate full-time. But did you jump in as an agent? Did you jump in as a full-time investor? Like, what, what did you do? Yeah, great question. So I tried to jump in to do full-time whatever I could do and sort of here over the next year or so kind of feel out what my direction was going to be in the industry. Um, Start realizing, uh, love being full, love being an investor full time. But being an investor, if you're buying hold, actually doesn't take up too much of your time, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I collect rent, I I pay my mortgages. Someone calls with a problem, I call the plumber. I'm not rehabbing properties myself, so it doesn't take up much of my time. So I'm like, all right, I've got these real estate licenses. Um, you know, I I'm really educated. Let me let me try the sales thing full time and. Uh, stumbled a lot at first, as right new agents do. Luckily, I've got income coming in from rental properties, so I can pay my bills and take that risk. So I fumble around there for the first year or two, trying to figure out what's for me. I, um, largely started my career at Long and Foster, which is a great place to learn about legal compliance and a lot of things like that in the industry. Um, and what I decided to do is. I start to sort of shadow all the top producers in my office, figure out what they're doing that other people are. Um, and right, nothing that we're doing is rocket science, but you don't know it until you know it. So start trying to emulate them. I start getting a lot of success. Um, and what I sort of started pivoting towards was I started realizing I'm not having a great time when I'm working with these consumers that are don't want to buy a house because the bedroom pink or it's got this problem or that problem. I realize I'm having a lot more fun working with the people that are like me that are an investor minded and want to, you know, add value to the property or they want to rent it out. They want to get creative. They want to, you know, do all these more interesting things. So I, I pivoted my business 
to starting to work with people like myself uh, and nothing. Mm-hmm. And once I started making that pivot, um, I had started having a lot of success. Um, and, you know, that's sort of where I've been the last t- 10 years is working primarily with investors. They're, and they're not my only client. They are probably about 80% of my client base. Uh, and just have a great time working with investors using all different kinds of strategies. So uh, I love working with someone when they present a strategy to me that I've never even thought of. It just opens my mind to new possibilities. So I love working mm-hmm. with kinds of really creative investors that are doing unique things. Interesting. I, you know, it's um, so let's unpack this a little bit because I remember being at a at a breakfast meeting with a very successful agent, and um, but he didn't play the investor game, right? The agent investor game, and I was telling him like what we built and what we're building and and, and all the rest. He said, "Yeah, but you know." with investors is so hard, right? Like you can't make money with investors. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Then the, the, then you're yeah, doing something I, wrong, right? I hear it all the time too. Yeah. So so let's talk about that. Like how do you make money with investors? What's your model look like? And by the way, what I've come to learn is that every area based on your area is slightly different, right? Like doing business in in Idaho or Ohio, working with investors is going to be different than downtown DC, right? Yep. So what's your model look like today? Yeah. So my model looks like, uh, so we generate our leads through sort of two primary factors. Instagram is one of them. Um, and in-person meetups, very similar to the grid, grid meetups. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we generate our leads. We get, uh, when we do a meetup, we get about 100, 120 people out. These are people that are already passionate about buying real estate, right? And man, who wants to go sit in a room with a hundred people where one person might be interested in buying real estate? I'd rather be in a room with a hundred people that are dying to learn how to buy real estate, right? So you've got a passionate client base right off the bat. Um, and we reach out, we find them on Instagram too. We, we spend a lot of time growing our Instagram networks, me and uh, an agent that works for me. Um, so that's how we generate our business. But the reason I believe that me and you have are able to work with investors and many agents aren't is we have credibility. Um, so when I have a client come to me and they want to learn about the real estate market and what's a good or a bad investment, they listen to me because I own a portfolio of rental properties. I've flipped X number of houses. Um, I've used this strategy, I've used that strategy. So I have credibility when I'm talking to them. The average agent, when they get an inquiry from an investor, the investor always ends up saying the same thing. I want to quit my job and live off of the cash flow, right? And in the DC area we have, where we have very low yield properties, that's really hard to do, right? At least quickly. Um, so these agents are looking for like these diamonds in the rough that don't exist. And I, I can take an investor and say, I know exactly what the print to rice price to rent ratio is in almost every city in the metro area, right? DC's price to rent ratio is 0.5%. So an $800,000 property rents for 4,000 if you rent it out normally. Um, that's pretty much break even, right? So I don't have to waste time looking for something that doesn't exist because I know exactly what the market offers. And if you're willing to accept what our market offers, 
maybe we can start getting creative and figuring out more ways to get more cash flow out of it. Um, but I'm not spending wasting time looking for something that doesn't exist. And that's where I think most agents get frustrated with the process. They don't, they have no credibility. They don't own these things. They don't work in the sector. So they don't know what exists. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then they, they end up, um, chasing their tail because some investor tells them that they want to go buy something at 70 cents on the dollar minus the reno. And it's like looking for a needle in the haystack and they yeah. think they got a client. And they're like, go fetch, right? Totally get it. So, yeah, we look at, and like on flips, we look at what the gross margin is between the acquisition and the ARV, right? And so someone tells me they want to flip. They only want to do it in Montgomery County. I'm like, well, the delta between the acquisition and the ARV is just too low. Maybe we'll find one flip in Montgomery County. We can't create a business of flipping there. Um, but if I go to PG County or I go to, you know, Patworth or Northeast DC, then these margins do exist, right? Mm-hmm. But I don't have to go searching everywhere. I know where the margins exist. Because I've, 100%. again, I've done these flips in these neighborhoods. So let's unpack what the team looks like right now. Right. What What does your team look like? Um, yeah, so it's just me and I've got one agent. Her name's Sarah. Um, she started with me in uh, February of last year. Um, so I do about 40 to 45 deals on my own per year. Um, so Sarah, in her first 11 months, she did 15 deals. Wow, that's um, great. And all she did was started implementing the systems that I do, right? So that's what we do. We teach people to replicate what we do. So in in replicating my system, she did 15 deals in the first uh, year, which we felt was awesome. We're trying to probably, we're hoping to double that this year. Um, So we'll see how that goes with her. We might take on another agent or two this year, depending on, depending on the way the market, you know, goes. It's going okay now, but definitely I'm a little more cautious than in years past. Um, Sure. 100%. I mean, well, we won't get into what, what we think the economy is going later this year, but I've got my thoughts, right? Um, okay, so let's unpack the system a yep. little bit, right? So what I heard you say was the system is Instagram, so build influence, right? Yep. Probably, and and host these events, get in the relationship with people. But where does the system go from there, right? Yep. Okay, I can I can meet somebody on Instagram where they, we can invite them to the, to the, uh, to the, to the meetup. And then at the meetup, we meet them. They get to know you like you and trust you because you're in the room. They feel you. They they understand. But how do you then take them from there? Yeah, so we have them pay to come to our meetups. It's a small nominal fee of $10. Um, but the, the, real, the real idea behind getting them to pay is then we have their email address from the payment. Mm-hmm. So we have a... So that creates the collection system of the contact um, in it's 100% accurate, right? So when you have sign-in sheets, 50% of those uh, contacts are not correct. People use fake names, fake emails, but by requiring payment, we get 100% correct contact information. So that's one of our things right off the bat. Uh, when we finish our meetups, in the within the next day or two, we want to touch them by email um, and we want to thank them for coming uh, you know, provide some other resources to them and we want to get them scheduled to come to our next meetup. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by getting them funneled into, uh, being excited at that point, they sign up for the next, uh, event and then we just get them, 
we get them into a drip campaign. We've during these meetups, we've made lots of conversations that we're having with people after them. So we have a very good sense too of who's ready to buy right now. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so because we're touching them, it's such a critical time where they're excited to come to a meetup. Um, they're out there and then they're talking about, oh, I want to, some people say, oh, I want to buy next year. We'll get them into a drip campaign, uh, right? We don't need to touch them as many times right now. But we run into tons of people who are like, man, I just got a flip that we're renovating and it's coming up. We're listing it next month. Boom, we're, we're getting out to their flip. We're giving them, I, you know, we want to see it in person. We want to get in front of them again. Um, or if they're a buyer, we want to try to get them out looking at properties very soon after these meetups. Um, because by doing this, we're creating the constant flow month in and month out of what our, you know, what our pipeline looks like. So I'm not having mm-hmm. a, I'm not having to worry about, man, am I going to make a sale this month? I, mean, I sell the same amount of houses every single month, three to four mm-hmm. units a month, year in, year out, because we're constantly generating the lead and we're trying to find the hottest lead of those leads to convert very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, that's why I love investors. They're, they're excited to buy. So right, <laughs> we're taking someone who can't wait to buy and we're helping them buy a house. Um, and then what we find is uh, somewhere in the range of 50% of our clients repeat within an 18-month period. Um, mm-hmm. They're not buying one property. They're buying two. They're buying three. Um, a lot of people cut off when they buy three or four. Um, not everyone's moving on to the 10, 20 unit portfolios, but most of our clients will very, very common for them to buy three or four uh, different properties. Are you uh, investing alongside of any of your clients? I do, I do not invest with any of my clients. Um, uh, I should say I, I have one quasi-partner, right, uh, that I will invest in. He ends up as a client per se because I'm managing the transaction. But other than him, I don't invest alongside my clients. Um, Got it. I, I give my clients very honest feedback about the properties they're interested in. Um, and what, you know, it's amazing because you've probably done this a million times. Whenever you tell someone, don't buy this property, um, their trust level in you explodes, right? Because oh, every, yeah. every other agent's telling them, just buy the first thing they see. Um, so as soon as you start telling someone not to buy properties, um, that trust level is going through the roof. And now you're not just getting them for one transaction, hopefully. You're getting them for multiples by building this trust with them. Yeah, trust is a big component, right? You want them to be successful yep. because in being successful, they will buy more properties in that yep. process. One of my friends, Darren Sager, he's an investor agent as well. Um, he taught me that early in my career that if your investor has a good experience being a landlord, they're going to buy multiple properties. And if they have a bad experience on that first property, not only are they never going to buy from you again, they're going to, you know, they're going to tell everyone how bad of an agent you are mm-hmm. because they made a poor decision, right? So, mm-hmm. so helping them by helping people make good decisions, um, not only are you creating a client that's going to buy multiple properties, actually creating a fan, someone who's going to go out there and do your marketing for you for your other clients. Yeah, you're helping people build wealth in that process. Um, what, what is the breakdown of your, uh, buyers and sellers, right? If you just yeah, like so, over the course of the year. 
typically it, it ends up right around 60% buyers, 40% sellers. Um, and I will say that ratio is definitely more in the last five or six years. Well, in the first, say, you know, three or four years of my career was probably like 90% buyers. Um, mm-hmm. But what I found is many of my sellers today were my buyers seven, eight, nine, ten 10 years ago. And what we like to do is, and this is how we also create a constant stream of our pipeline is, all right, this investment property you built seven or eight years ago, you've got all this equity in it. Is this the best use of this equity, just letting it go? Or should we trade you up to a more expensive property? Um, it's a strategy I use, right? I, I 1031 my old properties into larger ones. Um, so we take our past clients and we f- create that pipeline of helping them 1031 then from these older cheap properties they bought that have a lot of equity. Now they're sellers for us five, six, seven years later. Yeah, I love that. I love that that uh, that model, right? Because at the beginning of every year, you can essentially create almost a, an analysis, a financial analysis of their asset. Gives yep. you reason to reach out to them. Hey, this is what's happening. Which you know, retail agents can do that too. They just don't always think that way, mm-hmm. right? Um, in fact, we've just started adding. I'm ashamed to say we haven't done that before. That we've just started adding that piece to it because I'm like, God. We, we need to be telling everybody what their asset values are, right? And, and now today, there's really easy tools in order to help clients kind of understand that, right? Um, well, Russell, where is your portfolio mainly in the D.C. metro area or do you, do you buy it stuff is, outside? It is primarily in the D.C. metro area, um, primarily in Montgomery County and D.C. specifically. Um, mm-hmm. I've owned stuff in Prince George's County in the past and in Frederick County in the past. I'll... All my PG in Frederick County has been properties been sold off, and that money's been moved to Montgomery County and DC. Um, I've also invested in Boston in, uh, in the past as well, which I'm from there, so I know that market. And I've taken uh, a few chances in investing in the Charlotte market. Um, mm-hmm. It's not a market I necessarily sought out for any particular reason, other than when I first started buying there, I was coming out of a 1031 exchange. Um, and as you know, these 1031 exchanges, what do we have, 45 days or 60 days to identify mm-hmm. properties? And um, this was a few, I don't know, maybe three years ago. Like, as you know, inventory levels have been terrible here for a long time now. So coming out of the 1031, just couldn't find what I wanted. Happened to be visiting Charlotte. And I was like, let me take a chance and see what happens. And it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's worked out perfectly fine. Um, but I do prefer... I prefer here where I know everything about the market, everything, it's, every nuance of it. I just feel more comfortable investing where I know. Russell, I always say that good investors end up developing a thesis, right? A thesis on like where they want to buy, the type of product they want to buy, maybe where they start, where they move to, right? Every market kind of lends itself to different ideas, different theses in order to to help a client execute. Is there any thesis that you're working on right now that you're like, oh, we, we really like doing this here in yeah. the district? So my thesis is buying high quality assets along major commuter routes. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe if you're close to a major commuting route, the not only are our, pr- so our prices are appreciating everywhere, 
But what I found is that rent, rent growth is happening mostly along the major commuter routes, right? Because that's where people want short commutes. That's where they're willing to pay rent premiums to be. So the majority of my rental portfolio ends up in D.C. and Montgomery, in and Montgomery County, more or less along the Georgia Ave corridor. The major commuting route in Maryland, major commuting route in D.C. Um, it also, just having this grouping of properties makes it very easy to manage them, right? Yeah. I get two problems at a property. Well, they're probably only 15 or 20 minutes apart on the same road. Makes it easier for my contractor to get there. Makes it easier for me to run by and look at two properties at once. Um, I love every, I love tons of places in the metro area, but it definitely lends to ease of management by having them all sort of right in a the row there. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the major commuting route is really grilled into my um, mind because... Like I said, I've owned properties in PG County and sort of random places and my rents never went up or, you know, not substantially. Frederick, my rents really never went up in Frederick and properties I held there for 10 years, like literally rented for the same amount 10 years before. But in Petworth, my properties in Petworth right along Georgia Ave, um, maybe not in one fell swoop, but on average, they were rising $200 a month every year. So the properties I bought in 2010 in Petworth that were renting for two thousand by twenty twenty, they're renting for four thousand dollars. And then, wow. um, wow, and so bring the properties that uh, I bought that rented for two thousand, they they went up not as much, but they were renting for three thousand, you know, six, seven, eight years later. Um, mm -hmm. so the rent growth is where I feel that's what really gets me going because DC is a low yield environment, we're break even when we buy these properties, but our rent, if we buy in strategic locations. Our rent explodes so much, I create way more cash flow here than mm -hmm. someone who buys in Baltimore or Detroit or Ohio gets. Mm -hmm. um, but it just takes a little bit of patience. But how many people in Baltimore cash that are leveraged cash flow twenty five hundred a month on a single property? I've got a Rockville property that cash flows twenty five hundred a month, but you know it took ten years for that to happen. Sure. Yeah, and it's interesting. Also, the value, the, the value of those assets, you know, along that corridor, I imagine, are just consistently going up, like over yeah. time. I, I, I bought some assets in areas that I bought them because they were cash flow markets. Yeah. And then you realize that the asset values don't move. Um, the reds barely increase and the tenant turnover is super high. You think you're making money, but you're not making money. It's like pretty, pretty brutal. And, and, the thesis was stick to major markets or where where growth is going in major markets. Like, where is growth going? But I did notice this with DC. I don't do a ton of DC, but I, I see a lot more inventory in DC proper than in the surrounding markets right now. And I think it's mainly condos. Is that what you... Yeah, yeah. the condo market's been decimated since COVID started. Um, you know, I mean, it's been... A, if you want to be a buyer of an asset that got killed, Condos where it's at right now. Um, mm -hmm. And definitely, like, if we were to separate out the single family and row houses from the condo market, it is a tale of two different markets. We'd be talking about list to price ratio in a row house of probably 103% versus condos, which are probably, I bet if we looked at it, we're probably under 95% list to price ratio. Interesting. Um, nobody wants, and, and they're hard to rent out right now. Um, 
people don't want to live in one bed, small one bedroom apartments if they also have to work from home, which is right. Mm -hmm. A lot of people start experiencing that. Um, the condo market is getting killed, but row houses, um, man, they were popular over the last decade. They're even more popular now because people want space. So people who just not want to maintain a property are willing to now maintain a property in order to get that more space because they're home so much more. And what were the what were the what was the legislation that they put into the district regarding like Airbnbs? Did they just kibosh it? Yeah, but if you live in the property and you're staying in the property, you can pretty much rent it out uh, as you wish. But if you are not present in the property, uh, which means you're on vacation and you Airbnb it out, um, it's only available to 90 days of the year. And if you don't live in the property, you cannot do it at all. And that's not just D.C. Most of the surrounding counties took, you know, similar legislative steps. Sydney mm -hmm. Alexandria seems to be the only place that's Airbnb friendly. Um, Interesting. And right, sucks if you want to be a short-term rental uh, investor because we have a market that would be awesome for it, right? People want to come to DC, come see the sites, um, but it's a strategy that just doesn't work here. And now we've got a workaround for the strategy. Um, Midterm rentals, right? So mm -hmm. in DC, Fairfax County, Montgomery County, they define a short-term rental as anything less than 30 days. So some people are attacking the midterm rental market, which is often military people PCSing here, State Department people coming back and doing, you know, 90-day trainings. Um, so they, they'll book a 30 or 60, 90-day stay. Um, you can get a big run premium for that. Um, mm -hmm. So there are some investors attacking that, but short-term rentals, not working here at all. Yeah, midterm, midterm where it's at. Yeah. Interesting. Okay, do you work with builders and developers? Do you have a strategy working with them? Or So I personally don't work with builders. Um, we work with small flippers, but not like, um, no particular reason why we don't. We just don't have any in our portfolio of clients. Portfolio. But we do work with small, small flippers, decently amount. Got it. Okay, so people listening to this, um, some of them are licensed, Probably the majority of them are not, right? No. What are the advantages you think having the license as, because you, you have a portfolio of properties, right? You're, yep. you're an active investor, but you also have this license. Like, what are the advantages? What are the disadvantages? Like, help unpack that a little bit. Yeah. So I think everyone always thinks, man, I'm going to go get a, get a license because I'm an investor. Um, heck, I was one of those people. I had a, um, I had my license for 10 years before I became a full-time real estate agent. Uh, what I ultimately believe is if you are not going to be a full-time sales agent, it is a waste of money to have your license. There's continuing education. There's MLS dues. You know, people are always excited to get access to the MLS. I don't use the MLS. I use third-party apps to look at properties because they have a much better layout. Um, association dues, E&O insurance. Um, I bet I spent over the course of a decade, thirty, thirty-five, forty thousand dollars in fees that I could have went to buy another property. Um, I just don't see much of an advantage. The advantage is right you can collect a commission, but I'm sure I as many commissions as I collected being a licensed investor, I probably paid out in fees. Um, so I'm a big believer that there's no point in having that license unless you're actually going to use it for what it's actually intended for, to help people mm -hmm. buy and sell real estate. 
Mm-hmm. Um, maybe now the caveat there is you also want to find good agents to work with, which as you and me know is actually pretty hard. Um, mm-hmm. you and I know who all the great agents out there are, but it's hard for the consumer to know that. Um, so and not every market, right, is going to have a great agent. If you're in a market that's the price point of the properties is $50,000, um, you know, I hate to say it, but there's probably not a lot of great agents there because they can't, if they can't make a living selling those properties at those price points, so they're not selling them. So if you're in a market like that, you know, maybe you do get your license because you're going to be working with someone who's making minimum wage. Um, and that's not who you want to be working with. You want to be working with someone high knowledge. Um, success doesn't always equal, right, high knowledge. But if someone's really good at what they do, they're probably also successful. Yeah, uh, they they know, right? Yeah. They, they can guide you in that process. Okay, well, uh, tell me a little bit about just lessons learned with your portfolio, right? So people, those, they're not licensed. They want to build a portfolio. What advice would you give them? And what what's the makeup of your portfolio look like right now between row houses or multifamilies? Like, I'm just curious. Yeah, so the majority of my uh, properties currently are row houses. I think probably three out of four of them are row houses with the other one out of four being single family homes. And mm-hmm. our our goal, and when I say ours, me and my wife's goal, has been constantly to trade up our lower-priced assets to more expensive assets. So 10 years ago, I had a lot of cheap condos. Five or six years ago, we had a lot of single-family homes. And as everything's appreciated, we keep 1031-ing. And as we're able to save up more money quicker, we, we continue to buy the more expensive assets. So today, the majority of them are row houses. And I expect over the next few years, those single families will get 1031 in the row houses. And then probably in a few years, the row houses will get 1031 into probably more expensive multifamilies in, in the district going from s- single units that are around a million. You know, maybe we start buying the, the four units that are 2 million as the equity builds up. So we just constantly want to be increasing the average price of our asset uh, to keep trading up. Um, that's the beauty of the 1031 exchange. Um, and my lessons learned are, and this is something we imp- try to impart to all of our clients. I tell all of my clients, you really got to do an honest assessment of what your risk tolerance is and what type of tenant base and asset class you're willing to work with. You got to be honest with yourself. Everyone thinks they want maximum cash flow until they understand what being a landlord and a maximum cash flow asset means. Um, I was the same way when I was younger. Um, I always like telling this story about this property I had down in Oxon Hill. Um, I bought this, gosh, it's going to be 13, 14 years ago now. Um, it was like $100,000, needed some reno, was going to rent for $1,500. That's a cash cow in D.C., right? Mm-hmm. Well, what I what it never crossed my mind at that point was, man, I wasn't going to get an applicant with a credit score of a 580 in this location. Um, they're going to be a rough tenant base. So this guy lives there for three months, um, got to evict him, learn harsh realities about the eviction process in PG County and dealing with the <laughs> PG County Sheriff Department, um, get him out. And this was around, you know, the time of the foreclosure crisis, but tenants were doing these things too, because it was in the news. This dude hammered holes in every single wall with hammers. 
um, poured concrete down my toilet. Oh. Um, yeah, just um, so I bought the property for like I don't know, 110, maybe had 30, 30 grand in the renovation. So I'm gonna go for like 140. Um, when I sell it, I think I sold it for like 80 grand because I was just I'm being a landlord in Oxen Hill. I had one in Suitland too, which was this, you know not as bad of a story, but not a great experience. So Russell, I didn't assets that didn't match my risk tolerance. I couldn't, mm-hmm. and I thought, I grew up in rough neighborhoods. I thought, oh, I can handle, uh, you know, tenants like this. I, but the reality is adult Russell could not handle dealing with people like these. I have a building, Russell, I still own it today, that I shut down because it was cheaper for me to keep it shut down than to put tenants into it, right? And I just can't bring myself to bite the bullet to pay them the the differential between it's like a slow beat, right? Between like what I think it will sell for now and like what the mortgage amount is. And like yeah. I could cover that away. I just don't like emotionally I'd rather lose a thousand dollars a month, right? I, I don't know what the deal is, but I, my wife just keeps saying, What are you gonna do? And I'll that property, I'm like, I think we're just going to turn it into a park, donate it to the city, turn it into a park, get some kind of tax write off. It's my form of giving to the community. Like, that's how I'm going to have to sell it to myself, right? Uh, but the, the point being, we do, we learn in this process. We learn, and, and hopefully, what we're able to do is then help clients understand this very concept that you're talking about, right? Like, what does it actually mean to own a property like this? And what are you prepared? And um, and we found a sweet spot as well that worked really well for us in our market. And we just, you know, try to keep buying more properties like that, right? Interesting. Okay, so um, yeah, you were going to say something. You know, I think you... I was going to say, I always tell my clients, like, so smart people learn from their mistakes. Geniuses learn from other people's mistakes. So I, I like to tell clients, like, look, I've, made every mistake there is in the book bad flips bad tenants anything you can do learn from my mistakes be the genius here um that's what you're paying me for is to guide you away from this huge red flag that you're about to overlook that i'm willing to tell you like what my experience is with that big red flag russell somebody is is gonna buy something you know in dc DC market and it, for a long term buying, right? What do the numbers look like for a, 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 a decent deal, a good deal uh, for a row house from a cash on cash perspective, from an internal rate of return perspective? Like, what are you typically looking for as kind of like your buy box? Yeah. So I love the fact that you mentioned two different metrics there cash on cash and internal rate of return. So I find most of the properties that I buy, the cash on cash on the initial purchase is close to zero. Mm-hmm. It's pretty much break even against PITI. But what I have found is, because I measure the internal rate of return on every single one of my rentals that I sell. So whether it's been Montgomery County, uh, PG County, DC, I end up with an internal rate of return. So internal rate of return, for those that don't know, is the total return of the process. Uh, total return on everything in the asset, the cash flow, not just what the initial cash flow is, but what it actually was over the course of time, 
what the appreciation was, what my tax advantages were, what my debt pay down is. So my internal rate of return in DC is almost always in between 20 and 23%. And that pays 0% cash on initial cash on cash purchase. Um, And that's because our appreciation levels are going up. Not only going up a lot, they're going up very consistently. Um, So it's almost like I can predict year in and year out how much it's going to appreciate and how much my rent's going to change year in and year out. Um, And so... I mean, I, I think so many people focus on that cash on cash and ignore the total return because who cares if I get 13% cash on cash, um, it, but my value has never gone up one bit when, you know, 13 to 23% doesn't sound like maybe to a novice investor, like a big difference, but that's a huge difference. That's, that's a huge difference. Thing. You look at compounding or how quickly you're buying. Yeah, doubling your money in 10 or 12 years versus doubling your money in four or five years. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's massive, right? Um, but I would imagine that, that somebody that's buying where there's really just a break-even is that that person has to have, especially initially, uh, decent reserves, right? Uh, in case, you know, something goes wrong. Because I, I think, Russell, I, I don't know if you were like me, but like when I first started investing, I was like, oh, I'm going to buy property. I'm going to sit back. I'm going to let those checks come in. And uh, and like my idea on cash flow was like, oh, I'm just going to let the property do its thing. But then you realize, well, wait a second. If you don't take care of that thing and if you don't put money into that thing, like that thing just starts like falling apart, eroding in value. And, you know, a lot of landlords over time have sucked all the cash out of their property, never reinvested any money in their property. And, and then they've got this really crappy asset, right? Yeah, there's a stat. Um, I think 80% of home buyers and any type of home buyer experiences a major unexpected repair in year one of ownership. And that certainly happens to me. I, I buy a property where the HVAC looks fine. I know what to look for in an HVAC better than anyone else. But HVAC dies in three months and I'm like, what the hell? Um, right. And we live in an expensive market. It's not three grand to replace the HVAC here. It's seven grand. Some, you know, if it's in the city, it's eight grand. Um, so like you said, capital reserves, very, very important. This is a very, it's an expensive market to play in. Um, there's no getting around that. Yeah, there's no getting around that. So when somebody's building their portfolio, you just have to think about that, right? Um, well, any other words of wisdom for anybody that's looking to play the agent investor game or be an investor um, uh, or doing a combination of the the two, just... Something that yeah, you might think, want to import us with. I, I think my biggest investing philosophy is um, applicable almost anywhere. Buy high quality assets at high quality locations and try to put high quality tenants in them. Mm. If you do that, going to be hard to screw this up. Real estate is very forgiving. Yes, there are times where people lose money, but it's going to be hard to screw up if you do that. And then uh, on the agent side, um, my philosophy is if you, you got to have a lead generation system, it's got to be replicatable. You got to know how to pivot, right? So we do in-person meetups. Well, I never thought the world would get shut down. I wouldn't be able to do that. So we pivoted to a podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And we started generating mm-hmm. our leads through the podcast because we couldn't see people in person, but got to have lead generation systems. They have to be replicatable. 
And if they are replicatable, you can do the same amount of business month in, month out, not have to worry about your paycheck. But it, the key is that the lead generation systems. 100%. It, and uh, and I'm going to put a period behind that, meaning what's so cool about this lead generation system, the one that both you and I, we share, we have the same lead generation system, yep. right? Is that it's a system of building friendships and relationships yes. with people that are like us that want to do deals, right? And it's, so it's not like a hard thing. It's like, I'm just hanging out with people that I like to hang out with because we love the same stuff. Ain't that the truth? Like when I got into the business, you know, one of the things they teach you, right? They try to teach you to cold call and do stale mail. Um, and I'm like, I don't like these things. You know what I like? I like sitting around with people and talking about real estate. And mm-hmm. so somehow I figured out how to turn that actual uh, you know, thing that I'm doing into a business. Um, yeah. And so I, love it. I just get to have fun, right? Like meet like-minded people, talk about things that we're passionate about and somehow it turns in the money. It turns in the money. Cause you, you cause you're doing, cause you're, you're doing the right thing. You're helping educate people and you're guiding them, right? You're being a Sherpa. Love it. Well, great. If you're looking for a good Sherpa in the DC Metro market, the DC market, uh, Russell Brazil, is somebody that you should definitely look at. He's the real deal, right? He he understands the game. He understands his backyard better than anybody else. And I would highly recommend that you you give him a call, right? Russell, it sounds like people can find you on Instagram. What's the Instagram handle? Yeah, so my my handle's at Russell T. Brazil. I do try to answer most people that DM me. Sometimes some slip through the cracks or it gets sent to spam. But um, I do try to answer anyone's questions that does DM me on Instagram. Do you get a lot of clients from Instagram? Curious. Yeah, we get we get a lot. And so we, you know, it's always a little hard to understand exactly where they're coming from because our Instagram followers are also listening to the podcast. They're also mm-hmm. coming out to the meetups. We use Instagram to drive them to the meetups. Um, so it's all crossover, but um, there's definitely a de- decent amount that come from Instagram. Awesome, brother. Hey man, I appreciate it. I learned uh I learned a lot today. And that's awesome. always a fun podcast when I learn something. So Thank you so much for joining us. Awesome. Thanks, Rob. Always good talking with you. Good talking to you, buddy. Take care.